Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Welcome to the Mogul Marathon Real Estate Podcast. We highlight keen investment insights and strategies so you can become a real estate mogul. Here's your host, Yannick Kujo Virgin. All right, guys, welcome back to another episode of the Mogul Marathon Real Estate Podcast. I'm your host, Yannick Cujo Virgil, and I'm very, very excited for our guest today. Our guest today knows exactly how to design, build, and rent apartments, improve their customer uh, experience, and make socially responsible investments and contribute to their local community. But before we get into today's show, please, please, please like review, subscribe to the podcast. If you're a new listener, we've had a ton of reviews, great reviews about the guests that we have on our show. And if you can, we'd love for you to get some reviews and some feedback to us on our podcast. It really helps us get five-star guests like the one that we have today. So today's guest is Mike Kading. Now, Mike is the CEO of Norhart, which transforms the way apartments are built and managed by incorporating technologies and efficiencies that have revolutionized other industries and led to higher quality, cost-effective projects. And Norhart's mission is to solve America's housing shortage by transforming the way apartments are built and managed. Mike, thank you so much for being on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. So Mike, give our listeners a little bit about who you are, and how you got to where you are today. Yeah, as you mentioned, we design, build, and rent apartments. We're really focused on driving down those costs of construction. We're already achieving about a 20 to 30% reduction in cost, and we believe that we can achieve a 50% reduction. But imagine what that means. It means someday your rent could be half, or your mortgage payment could be half. Ultimately, we're working to solve America's housing affordability crisis because you look at look at America over the past decades and housing costs have risen faster than incomes. And we want to solve that for Americans nationwide. Wow, that's phenomenal. And um, I'd love to dive a little bit more into that, right? Because in the development space, it's all about the cost of bill versus your return. Yeah. And, you know, there's a ton of conversation out there about labor costs and materials costs. I mean, thank God lumber is not where it was, you know, 12 to 24 oh, months ago. Awful. So dive into that a little bit. I know a little bit about you and your efficiencies, but give our audience a little bit more color behind like how that could possibly be achieved. Yeah. So at a really high level, what we do is we apply the innovations from other industries. In the world of manufacturing over the past 60 years, they've improved labor productivity by 760%, big number. Agriculture, 1,500%, even bigger number. But do you know what construction has done during that time period? Virtually nothing. It's been 10%. It's awful. We should be embarrassed. It's unreasonable. So if you apply what's learned in these other industries to our own, we can have similar success. Let me give you a flavor of that. One of the challenges with construction is it's very segmented. You have a different owner, a different company that's the owner, a different company that's the developer coordinating the construction, a different company yet again that's that's all the subcontractors, your plumbers, electricians, your HVAC. And if construction were to produce cars, 
You'd have a different company installing the windshield, a different company installing the door, a different company, yet again, installing the wheel. And then, of course, the wheel company would call you up and say, hey, I'm so sorry. We're delayed on another project. We can't get out there for another two weeks. You'd be shut down. And when they did arrive, they would be irate because they could only work on one car at a time. See, manufacturing looks at us and says, dude, you're crazy. Why in the world would you do it that way? The reality in the world of construction is that's normal. So you bring the work in-house, and I'll just give you one other little tidbit, is once you do that, we can apply really simple innovations. In the world of manufacturing, they invented the assembly line. Very simple, but powerful. But you might think, like, how in the world can we apply that to the world of construction? You can't take a building and drive it down a line. Well, no. But what you can do is you can take the person and move them through the building. So right now in our buildings, every five hours, every single team shifts one unit to the building. So if you look at the end of our building, that means every five hours we're producing a brand new apartment unit. And that takes a project that may have taken 15 months, and that one technique can drive it down to nine months. That's amazing. So just to get a little bit more depth into it now, are you bringing your trades in-house, you know, when it comes to your plumbers, your electricians, your mechanical, you know, subcontractors? Like, is there like some vertical integration, I assume, that, you know, you're hiring to kind of make these projects faster to completion? Is that your business model? Absolutely. So we have everything in-house. We are literally dirt to key. We have property managers on one end handing out the keys to residents. In the other end, we have plumbers, electricians, carpenters, HVAC. Uh, we also are moving now into manufacturing. We've got our first two manufacturing facilities up and operational now. We're moving into supply chain and actually handling the supply chains all the way back from China. But providing that vertical integration then gives us the canvas that we need to make the improvements we want to see. That's awesome. Considering, I guess, the way, and I'm curious too, you know, how was your operations during uh, like COVID when labor costs were up, lumber was up, you know, did you, were you impacted at all? You know, were you able to get projects, you know, completed? Were you able to, did, like, did you have any issues during construction? You know, how did that perform during that cycle? that we were previously in. Yeah, it was, I mean, it was hard for everyone and certainly it was hard for us too. Uh, lumber was up. I remember plywood and OSB was just incredibly expensive. Uh, and we, in some cases we couldn't get things. Like I think resin was completely out so we couldn't even get our tubs. And there was lead times that were months long, like windows, we had issues with that. And staffing is certainly an issue too. You know, one of the interesting things we've learned in staffing is it's really hard to find great construction workers. So what do we do to solve that? We ended up hiring 14 recruiters. So we have 14 recruiters on staff that all they do is look to find the best of the best people that we possibly can. You just be scrappy, innovative. You just, you pivot when you're about to be punched, you move to the side, right? And you just learn and grow from that. And that's just entrepreneurship. I think, you know, to be a successful entrepreneur, you really have to be nimble. You have to be, you know, in tune with your environment, in tune with what's going on. And just like you said, right, be flexible, be fluid, right? Be in a position to pivot at any time because the market is the market. But sometimes, uh, 
we can't really change what's going on on the external, but we can on the internal. And I think, you know, for anyone that's new getting into the space of entrepreneurship, that essentially is just a microcosm of the entire business. Absolutely. You get hit all the time. I have so many bruises, so many pain points. And it's not the failures that define you. It's how you handle those failures. You know, one thing I like to say to people, especially as you're getting into this, is that you're going to be terrible at first. Terrible, right? That's human nature. When you're born, you can't walk, you can't talk, you can't add. But with time, you learn and grow. But what's kind of interesting in our mindset so often as we get older is we think, I'm not willing to try something new unless I think I'm going to be good at it. That's the wrong perspective to have. You need to jump in, learn, grow, have that tenacity and energy. Know you're going to get beat up. That's part of the process, but you'll come out stronger for it. Absolutely. So let's touch on your acquisition criteria. I know that you are based in Minnesota, but for our audience that you know are a little bit interested in knowing more about you and your company, you know, what's your acquisition criteria? You know, what type of deals do you look for? And um, maybe touch base on, you know, maybe some markets that you're also invested in as well. Yeah. So the most important thing for us is driving down the cost of construction. And that guides decision-making that's maybe a little bit different than other people would think about uh, certain markets. One example of that is that we don't hop between a lot of different markets because we want to build up the system that builds housing in a particular market. So right now we're building that system up in the Twin Cities in Minnesota. We're expanding down into Texas. But that becomes one of the first constraints because we want a consistent flow of work. But then secondly, probably is more standard techniques, like looking at what kind of commercial is in those areas, what kind of transportation there is. We look at new and exciting upcoming areas. Our properties tend to be some of the more uh, high-end properties of the state. For example, our latest building has a restaurant, coffee shop, co-working space, thousands of square feet of amenities, penthouse suites, rooftop, patio and grill, the pool. The, you know, there's a transit line that stops right at the front door, that kind of thing. Because we also want to create incredible experiences for our residents. Yeah, that's really, really cool there. And so what's your portfolio size You know, currently? as you continue to grow out your firm? Yeah, we're about 1,000 units today, although we are building at 500 units per year. And that construction rate for us has been more or less doubling in size every year. And our goal in the next 10 years is to reach a 60,000 unit per year construction pace and 192,000 units under management. Wow, that's a great uh, great number there. And I think uh, definitely by having, you know, your systems vertically integrated. Uh, there's no reason why you shouldn't hit that number. Hey, listen up. If you're an employee, business owner, or professional athlete with money in the bank earning 0% return, and you're thinking about passively investing in real estate, well, you need to check out our ultimate syndication guide for passive investors. This free guide absolutely covers everything you need to know about passively investing in real estate syndication or just real estate in general. If you want access to this valuable resource, go to MerlinAcquisitions.com slash Passive Guide to download the free syndication guide for passive investors. That's M-E-R-L-Y-N-N Acquisitions.com slash Passive Guide or head over to the show notes and click the link to download. Now let's get back to the show. Talk a little bit about, you know, your properties, right? We live in a world where 
there's a lot of prop tech and a lot of technology that helps, you know, builders make smart decisions, but then also provides a relatively smooth and clean experience for their their tenants. You know, are you using technology to kind of facilitate with the development process and, you know, the efficiencies that maybe go on within that development process as well? Can you share a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. So to give you some flavor on the development side, they're working on technology right now where we can take a, the dream is, we can take a site plan, so the layout of the entire site, plug it into a computer, and the computer generates everything and then spits out back to us fully completed architectural plans, fully completed engineering plans, done in a way that's very cost efficient. And so we're working to get our engineering team to focus less on designing the next building, but more on designing the system, again, that designs those buildings. Another area of technology is just the manufacturing capabilities itself. Today, it's there's some technology in place and there's some manual processes. We want to move more and more and more toward a world of much more robotics and much more automation. On the property side, things like the smart home tech, or it's little things. It's how do we move pain points out of people's lives? For example, when you move into our buildings, you do not need to sign up for internet. You do not need to sign up for water, gas, electricity, any of that stuff. It's done for you on day one, and it's automatically integrated into the rest of your bill. But I think the one thing to be mindful of, the one scrape I have on my knee, is that sometimes people race to do technology because the technology is cool. And that's fine. But there's a downside to it because when you bring out new technology, you have technological debt, meaning you have something else that you now have to maintain and integrate and coordinate with. Really, the right approach is understand what end experience that you want, and then based upon that experience, back out what technology you need to drive that end experience. One example is smart home. It sounds fantastic. We initially jumped in full of throttle. We had everything was all smart home infrastructure. And then it turned out people went back to the light switch, right? And the reason is because the light switch was just a little bit easier than using your phone to turn it on and off. What experience are we trying to create there? And are we actually enhancing it with the technology we're using? That's very, very uh, practical in the approach about how to approach the technology, right? I think and technology is always going to be somewhat complicated depending on, you know, how you're using it and who it's for. Um, I think it's up to as a developer, as an investor to envision that, like you mentioned, you know, forward looking, right. And figuring out, you know, what does it look like for the customer or the person that you're developing for? And then re-engineer, re- reverse engineer that back into your processes and your systems that would allow you to to create that. And also equally interesting was the point that you brought up about the automation behind creating designs. And I think that is definitely something that will completely disrupt the space considering the pre-development fees that are necessary to even spend before, you know, putting a shovel in the ground. Awful. It's so expensive. I mean, you can already save a lot of those costs. Like what we did is bring that infrastructure in-house and create more standardized building components, I'll say. You know, our engineering team goes and does like a deep dive study into what's the most optimal steel stud joist. They do like a dissertation on it. But we don't need to do that on a, a million different objects. We we narrow that down into only a handful of objects and then reuse them. And so that reduces the cost of design. Or if you just use a third-party architectural and design firm, 
a lot of times they have to create more custom stuff for your project. They're not necessarily using standards because your project's just different. Yeah, and I think that's for folks who are trying to get into the world of, of real estate development. I think it's you know likely dependent on you, the developer, to to keep coming back to the table to you know engineer and design and, and really come up with something that is feasible because a lot of times, you know, some of those professionals, they just think inside of a box, right? And I think it's up to us as from the private sector to come with new ideas because one little tweak can possibly save about a million dollars on a development site, right? Yeah. And one thing people don't really understand until they get into this is that architects and engineers are not trying to design the most optimal building for you. What they're designing is what's the fastest thing that I can do that meets code, right? Because that optimizes their profits. It doesn't necessarily improve the project as a whole. And the other thing is, um, it is just like you said, you can do something called value engineering, where you bring people together. You look at the different aspects of the project. You understand the cost of them and the options, and you start rearranging and and refiguring and, and exploring new options rapidly. And that one technique alone can drop project cost by 5, 10, 15%. Super cool. So let's fast forward into uh, today's environment. It feels like everyday interest rates are going up. Things are happening. The capital markets are tricky. You know, how is your firm looking at, you know, development today? Are you guys, you know, putting a shovel in the ground today? Are you guys on the sideline? You know, maybe for some of our listeners who are interested in getting into the world of real estate development, maybe they are currently in, you know, acquisitions doing value add and they're interested in getting into the development space. You know, what should they be looking out for as they start to pivot their tracks into the world of real estate development? Yeah, I have lots of conversations with people on this on a regular basis. And what I'm hearing right now in the market is that so many deals don't pencil out anymore because the construction costs are still high interest rates have risen and it just the numbers just don't make sense. Investors are only getting, you know, getting smaller IRRs than they have in the past and others saying, "Well, I can put my money in a riskless kind of bond and maybe it's less interest, but given the amount of risk there, I don't know if I want to jump into your deal anymore." And so what's happening is the number of apartment starts has fallen substantially. The last data I was looking at, it's fallen by half. It's at lower numbers today than it's been in the last decade. What's also interesting is the number of units under construction today are at the highest numbers it's been in the past decade. So what you had is after COVID, this giant wave of development that's now crashed, at least for new starts, which means there's going to be opportunity in the next year or so as developers and construction people start realizing that I'm not getting deals anymore. I've got to start lowering my costs. Um, So I'm seeing a lot of investors kind of sitting on the sidelines for those reasons. We haven't stopped. How can that be, right? Like, why are we still growing? Well, you have to remember, our costs are about 20 to 30% less. So for a $100 million building, our cost of that building might be $70 million. Now, a bank might come in and offer 75, 75% of the project. So generally, we've been financing our buildings entirely on our own. We don't really need to have capital in the project because of the banks. But with rising interest rates means that banks have become more conservative, meaning they're offering less money today than they have in the past. So the same $100 million building, they may only be offering 
55, 60, 65 million. So we are having to bring capital to the table. So for us, we had a war chest. We have a war chest that bridges that gap for now. But just like I mentioned earlier, you get punched and you got to pivot. And so for us, we are pivoting and we're actually offering or creating an opportunity for people to invest for the first time ever into our deals. But it works for us because we didn't need the investment and our costs are so low so we can continue to build regardless. That's, uh, you know, back to the point about being nimble and being yeah. flexible in, in your approach as an investor. I think, you know, there's a ton of benefit of having, you know, the vertical integration component into your business because it's a little bit more control over projects and you're able to compete a little bit better. And if something happens, there's likely a little bit of spread that's still there to, you know, absorb any, you know, unforeseen punches that, you know, a regular operator who's just outsourcing everything, that's just a shop that, you know, manages the development and has, you know, uh, their own separate contractor and your separate design team, you know, they're a little bit more less absorbent, you know, from a cost perspective. Yeah. You know, these other developers, if they've got a five or maybe 10% profit margin and the values drop by five or 10%, they're out. For us with, you know, 20 to 30% values drop by five or 10%, we're still fine. We're just not as profitable as we were before. That's that's super cool. So, uh, Mike, you've been on this marathon for quite some time now, right? Yeah. You know, what is one thing that if you had to do this all over again, this marathon all over again, what is one thing that you would do that you would do a little bit differently this time around? Yeah. One simple thing. The most important lesson that I have ever learned is to hire the best people. I didn't understand that originally. I would push that back and start doing that from the beginning. But the best people change the game. And when I say best, I truly mean like world-class, best-in-the-world kind of people. We fly people in from other states to come work here during the week and fly them home because they're best in the world at their niche. One of our staff members uh, in 2007, when Steve Jobs announced the iPhone, on that stage, he walked off stage and our staff member walked on that same stage following Steve Jobs to announce other related things. It's that kind of caliber of person. Now, the common question I get next is, yeah, Mike, I, seriously, I can't afford that. These guys are expensive. And the truth is, on a per-person basis, they are expensive. But what people don't understand, and the lesson that I've really learned deeply, is that the best people outperform the average by two to five to 10 times as much. I mean, you were in the NFL, you, you've seen that, right? And when you look at the cost of the employee on a per-production basis, the best people are actually the most inexpensive. But not only that, they change the game. They radically improve things. And so when people ask me and say, I can't afford the best people, my response is you can't afford not to have them. Yeah, <laughs> man, I, I 100% agree, I think. That is probably one of the biggest mistakes that newer entrepreneurs make when they're trying to build their company or just they're doing businesses. A lot of times they're price sensitive. And that's something that I quickly learned, you know, to your point as well, was that this business is all about people, right? If you are yeah. doing large projects, large developments, there's almost 100 people that are going to be working for you in some way or capacity. 
it would behoove you to put your best foot forward, number one, but then also understand that you're only as good as your team, right? And it's mm. you made the football analogy. It's it's like we always say you're only as good as your weakest link. And so if you're able to surround yourself with people who do great things and are star players, quite frankly, at their position, then that only impacts or helps you as the coach or the leader on the team to just focus on being a visionary, right? Focus on creating more business or focus on all of the high level tasks that if you were to pay someone that was average, well, you get average results. And so I think, you know, that is 100%, I agree, a golden nugget there. You know, if you are hiring someone to be, you know, your star player, you're hiring someone to, you know, be, maybe be just be a virtual assistant, you know, our firm, we have no problem paying someone their worth because we mm-hmm. believe that when you pay people well, they ultimately, most of the time, will do great work for you. And then they ultimately would be uh, less of a, a headache or a problem, or they would bring so much value to your company if you all, you know, obviously have the right hiring process as well. Yeah, exactly. And that's where you can fall into a pitfall. Paying top of market and paying well is really important. But if you're paying that level and you only have B players, you're going to fail really quickly. You've got to pay top level and have top people. You know, the thing that was really interesting for us was before I learned that principle, we were maybe growing at 10 or 15% per year. Once we sincerely made significant changes based upon that insight, we started doubling in size every year. Wow. And it's, you know, it's a testament to your company, right? With the work that you guys do, the hiring that you guys do, the thought that you guys have, the efficiencies, the vertical integration. Um, I expect nothing but the best from Norhart. So it's cool to see that um, you're, you know, in Minnesota, you're, you know, rocking and rolling and things are going great for your company. So, you know, Mike, talk a little bit about your, you know, your investment platform for maybe some folks who are interested in learning more about you and some of the things that you have in your pipeline. Yeah. So the way we thought about our investment platform, at least starting off, is how can we replace the banks? Because that was sort of the kink in the armor that we were kind of struggling with. And although we won't completely replace them, we want to allow investors to become the bank and to not just earn that interest rate, but to also earn the bank's profits. So if you visit our website, norhart.com, that's N-O-R-H-A-R-T.com, on there you can actually see the opportunities that you might have on earning high uh, interest rates on your money. You can put it in for short periods of time or lock it up for long periods of time. We've had a lot of interest in that product. And with time, we'll expand that out to additional offerings on that platform. The other kind of fun thing that we're doing at the moment is we're launching a new podcast. It's called Zero to Unicorn. It's about the journey of small businesses growing to billion-dollar enterprises and really asking the question, what is that really like? You know, the good, the bad, the ugly, the scars, the bruises, the lessons learned, and really opening up that to the world. It's fantastic. Uh, Mike, it was such a great conversation today. I mean, we talked a lot about real estate development, your efficiencies, your vertical integration, how you are hiring, you know, rock star, you know, employees. There were just so much to talk about in today's uh, episode. So thank you so much for being a guest on our show. Thank you to all of our listeners for tuning into another episode of the Mogul Marathon 
real estate podcast. Let's take action. Be great. And remember that real estate is a marathon, not a sprint. So run your own race. Thanks again, Mike. Thanks. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.